Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. So today I was thinking about being a kid and how I would often uh, try to get out of cleaning my room by doing other tasks that were like somewhat good for me, like reading. Uh, And when my mom came to check on me and find out how much progress I'd made uh, in cleaning my room, I'd be like, I was trying really hard, but I got so engrossed in this book and I would never get away with it, but I would always try it. And one of the books I remember getting so engrossed in when I was supposed to be cleaning my room was uh, Dolaire's book of Greek myths. Which Who, is, uh, wait, whose? Dolaire, D apostrophe A U L. Never, never heard that. Is that that's not the Edith Hamilton that I was it's, taught as a kid. It's not. Yeah, um, but this was an illustrated book of Greek myths. Ooh, so pictures. It's, yeah, it's definitely made for younger people to be able to digest. They only spend about two or three pages on each of the stories. But they also have little like illustrated family trees of all the gods and heroes. So you can see all of the women that Zeus boinked and all the sons and daughters that he had. Um, You mean when Zeus gave his majestic seed to a mere mortal? Yeah, in the not necessarily most consensual fashion. You can't Um, say no to Zeus. No uh, one can. eh, Well. You just, you can't. Anyway, um... But yeah, there there were times when I would find myself just spread out on the floor uh, reading that book and looking at the illustrations, which are really beautiful. And that's when I discovered my favorite story in the world, my favorite myth, not just my favorite Greek myth or whatever, but my favorite myth of all time, which is Orpheus and Eurydice. And I remember reading that story uh, in, in that illustrated book And, you know, lying next to it and seeing the beautiful illustrations of how Orpheus, the greatest musician of all time, would play music for the lions and the rabbits and all the trees and all the beasts and rocks and everything would get up and dance to his music. And if you don't, if you aren't familiar with the story, uh, it's fundamentally a very tragic Greek myth where Orpheus, uh, that great musician, falls in love is about to get married, and his wife, Eurydice, 
is struck by a serpent and killed. And so the story tells of his journey into the underworld to go and retrieve her. And I remember sitting there looking at those pictures and thinking, this is the most beautiful story I've ever read. A story of love overcoming all or not. Yeah, because if I recall the story correctly, he gets down to the underworld. He pleads his case to Hades, who is, if you don't know, the Greek god of the the underworld, uh, Pluto in Roman, um, or in Latin, pardon me. And he says, all right, you know what? You make such great music. I typically don't do this because... You know, I'm one of the main gods. I'm kind of a dick by nature. But you brought a tear to my wife Persephone's eye. And uh, I rule the underworld, so I'm in particular a prickly deity. He says, okay, you can take her back. Just do me a favor. As you walk out of the underworld, you can't turn back. If you turn back and look at her, that's it. Done deal. She's mine forever. Yeah. And he looks back right before he leaves the underworld and loses her forever. Yeah. It's pretty awful. Uh, and there's a few interpretations of why, you know, he why he looks back, even though he was expressly told not to. The most, uh, the one that makes the most sense is really that he couldn't hear her footsteps behind him, and he would started to think that Hades had tricked him, double crossed him, right? Yeah, and so it was this lack of faith, literal lack of faith in the god of the underworld, uh, that caused him to turn around and have that doubt. Uh, and the story ends, you know, Orpheus, who who people gather around to hear his music and he makes everybody dance, but now he's playing the saddest songs they've ever heard and everybody's crying and everybody's weeping. And then these followers of Dionysus come and essentially tear him apart. They tear him limb from limb and throw him into the river. And as his head floats down the stream, he still sings. There's another interpretation there too, right? That... Dead is dead. And even even the will of the gods can't truly undo that. Even if they want to undo that and feel compelled to, uh, at the end of the day, there are even you know more primal forces than the gods that are gonna prevent. And once something has died, uh, you know, you can as a mortal, as someone living, go to the underworld and, and have a psych a, a symbolic rebirth. So uh, what's his name? Orpheus symbolically dies by going into the underworld right. and gets to be reborn. Uh, but the true dead do not get that luxury. And I can't think of a time, at least in Greek or Roman myths, where a hero um, who dies gets to actually be reborn, who gets to go to the underworld and come back, who didn't go to the underworld at first living. I can't think of one. Right. Yeah, I can't think of one either. I don't think there is one. I wonder. Well, that's what made Jesus so cool. He got to do that. Right. And people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one gets to do that. Yeah. Even Hercules didn't get to do that. And we're like, well, maybe you shouldn't worship Hercules. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe not. That's Uh, exactly how Christianity came about. People ended up worshiping Orpheus as well. The, The other end of that story is that his head washed up on the Isle of Lesbos and, uh, became a shrine and they began worshiping uh, there were Orphic cults that arose out of that. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's a really great introduction. Yeah. Um, so tonight we, we wanted to talk, we were inspired by some of the things that we talked about in our previous episode on the Odyssey and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, and we were reflecting 
a lot on this idea of the underworld or the afterlife or the other side in mythology. And we wanted to look at those universal connections that really cross boundaries of, of cultures, that really cross mythologies and how many similar stories that we have. And then I wanted to ask one fundamental question tonight, and that's what is our contemporary underworld myth? What is the, the theme that ties that together in the same way? Because living in a more secular society, uh, not that people aren't religious anymore, but religion doesn't dominate our art the way that it did, we're asking different questions now. So that's where I'm starting to you jump wanna, off tonight. Do you want to start with that question? I want to get to it. Oh, okay. Let's. Why don't we talk about a couple a of other big underworld question. stories? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's a big, 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 big question. Yeah. All right. Well, where? What story do you want to start with? Then I know we had a few locked and loaded. Where? Yeah. Where, where would you like to begin there? So love? we started with Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a major, major um, underworld story of Greek mythology. There's another really huge underworld story of Greek mythology uh, that actually. Uh, concerns the origins of Persephone, the queen of the underworld. Oh, that's the one I wanted to talk about. I would love for you to talk about it. Um, okay, so I think if you've taken a you know middle school literature class, you're probably familiar, but there was this hymn in the ancient world that was sung and repeated, and it was and it told the story of Persephone. Uh, she goes by another name as well in the myth. She goes by Cori, I think is what it is, K-O-R, like an apostrophe over the E, any classicists or ancient Greek snobs that are telling me I'm pronouncing it wrong, please let me know. Oh, yeah, sure, please. In this story, um, Persephone gets chosen to be the bride of Hades. Um, Hades is obsessed with her. Persephone is a sort of semi-divine creature. What do I mean by that? In the ancient Greek mythos tradition, the tradition of myth, there were gods who were able to give birth to creatures that were somewhat divine and somewhat not divine, whether that's a monster, whether that's a hero, um, whether that's a nymph. There are lots of these creatures in the world, <clears throat> and um, Persephone is one of those, and she's the daughter of Demeter, Demeter being um, a, a goddess of agriculture, of rebirth, a goddess that's associated with food, with springtime. The harvest, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reason why you don't say someone is the god or goddess of this is because that's actually not correct at all in trying to understand myth. That was uh, brought about by Edith Hammond, who I mentioned earlier. I'm probably not saying her name right. Edith but, Hamilton, right? Yeah, she wrote a a textbook on mythology that became the standard textbook. Problem, sure is. Problem with it, none of it's true or right or accurate. But <clears throat> that being said, no one is really the god or goddess of anything. In particular, it's how are they celebrated in the mythic tradition and how are they celebrated in the ceremonial tradition? So we can understand ancient religion, I'm kind of tangenting here, in two terms. It's all good. Mythos and cultos. Mythos means myth. What are the stories around this god or goddess? Cultos, how they are worshipped. And in that case, the way a god is worshipped in the particular cults, there's no standard orthodoxy in the way we have religion today. Meaning there's no text that says, if you want to worship Demeter, this is how you worship Demeter. Right. Everyone can make it up as their own, and someone could sacrifice to Demeter 
as a virginity goddess. Another could sacrifice to her as a fertility goddess. One might say, hey, I like both of that. I'm going to make her both of those. And that's not at all contradictory or um, uh, it's logically fallible, but it wasn't thought about in the ancient world. That being said, long-winded story. Um, So Hades kidnaps Demeter, takes her into, I'm sorry, Persephone, uh, Corey, takes her into the underworld, claims her as his own, as his bride, as the queen of the dead. Well, this doesn't fly so well with Demeter, and Demeter decides that, you know what, I can, I have the power to stop things from growing, so I'm going to stop things from growing out of my sadness. Well, this causes a whole uproar amongst humanity that then we kind of need things to grow uh, in order for us to live. So they start, um, you know, issuing complaints and unhappiness. Eventually, Zeus has to adjudicate this dispute. Demeter is essentially causing global famine, while Hades is down in the underworld with his hot new, you know, teenage bride being like, nah, fuck them all. And, um, oh God, I'm forgetting. How do the pomegranates come in? I'm blanking. Yeah, so when he first takes Persephone down to the underworld, uh, there's this lavish feast, and he warns her that if she has anything uh, off of the table, if she eats any of that food, she's going to become permanently part of the underworld. And she's starving and she can't resist. And she eats a a couple of pomegranate seeds. Uh, And because of those pomegranate seeds, she's doomed to to truly be his bride. She's become a thing of the underworld. Right. And uh, yeah, that fruit thing has some some very biblical analogies as well. Yes, I'll get to the significance of that. Go on, yeah. Um, So then Zeus has to adjudicate this. Persephone technically now belongs to the underworld. However, Demeter is so sad, she's causing famine. So he comes up with a solution, and it's pretty simple. It's pretty elegant. Part of the year, Persephone can spend time with Demeter. The other part of the year, she has to go into the underworld. Now, this is commonly referred to and thought of, and indeed, ancients referred to and thought of it, as an explanation of the changing of seasons. Right. In winter, uh, Demeter is sad, hence things don't grow, hence it gets cold, trees die. But then um, in comes springtime, and then here comes the rebirth, and Demeter's happy because she's reunited with Persephone. Right. However, this doesn't hold up under any actual scrutiny or analysis. And the reason for that is that the the harvest in um, Greek times was in fall. Mm. They would plant late summer and harvest early fall, not actually in spring, which leads us to the question, what's the purpose of this myth? And a few things. So you mentioned the pomegranate seeds. They happen to also be the same size as apples. Right. Greek women often um, on their marriage ceremony would walk with an apple in their mouth. The idea that marriage is the death of youth. Whoa. And a woman enters into marriage with an apple the way Persephone enters into marriage with a pomegranate. However, Persephone's special. Her youth doesn't get to permanently die. Right. She can relive it with her mother, which is not how it worked in ancient Greece. Once a woman is fully married to the man, she's now fully the property of that man. But Zeus then gets to adjudicate this as the father of all the gods and ultimately decide Persephone's fate, you know, holding the supremacy of the patriarchy. Yeah. 
you know, the other important thing to listen is to, to note in reference to this podcast is that the underworld becomes a place directly responsible for famine. You know, it's the start of the Greeks sort of working out the death anxiety yeah. of contemplating and knowing their own death. How do we know the underworld is bad? Well, look what Demeter did when her daughter went there. Right. Right. And uh, another you know, way that I look at that too is in these two stories, the story of Orpheus, the story of Persephone is how they also deal with grief. Uh, you see the effect on the world around these characters after they've lost someone they love. Orpheus starts singing the saddest songs. He makes everybody depressed. Demeter loses her daughter and makes everybody starve. Is it Demeter? Am I pronouncing it wrong? I, I actually don't know what the like correct we'll, product. We'll go with Demeter. That sounds be. That's cooler. what I've heard. But, okay. I don't um, know either. We also don't speak Greek. Ancient Greek. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, there's this fascinating uh, look at grief and how it affects the people around you. And so they're working out that death anxiety. They're working out that pain of loss, uh, not just of someone that you love, but that fear of your own future, the fear of what comes next, the fear of what you might have to face someday. And I think a common thread in understanding most ancient myths, and I would highlight in particular the Greek myths, is the understanding of of the individual amongst the world, amongst the gods, what its role is, how does individualism exist, the role of fate, and ultimately how you deal with the inevitability of death. Right. And I think that's present in almost every Greek myth known to me where that is looming there and Persephone is no different as because, you know, in a very real way, sometimes a mother's daughter gets stolen early by death. Right. That happens in particular in the ancient world. And if you're lucky in the modern world with modern medicine, maybe not as much, but it still happens that death may come and claim your daughter as an early bride and take her away from you before you're ready. So you have to have a way to work this out. And I think Demeter's presence in this story is the one that there will always be a new rebirth. Even even if you lose your daughter, there will always have to be a rebirth. That death is also part of the cycle. It's natural. It is, yes, sad. And yes, you should grieve because there is in the Greek, you know, mythic tradition, nothing worse than death. But there will always be rebirth, and that has to be the kernel of hope in the Persephone story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, to look at how widespread these, uh, these stories about not just death, but stories about the world beyond are. Uh, to name just a few, there are Babylonian myths about people traveling to the underworld, goddesses like Ishtar traveling to the underworld, having to be rescued from the underworld. Gilgamesh tries. Gilgamesh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have stories from Asia. We have Japanese mythology about this kind of thing. Uh, there's a very, um, I'll post something on social media with more details, but there's a story very similar to the Orpheus myth in Japanese tradition. And then there's so much more, too, in Greek mythology. Of course, we talked about Odysseus visiting the underworld and and speaking with Achilles there. Uh, and then we have stories about the 
insane kind of punishments people would suffer in the underworld, like uh, Sisyphus pushing the boulder continuously up the hill to see it roll back down and have to start again, or Tantalus, who was like knee deep in a puddle of water and also just out of reach of a of a fruit on a tree. And so he every time he reached down to get some water, the water would recede. And every time he reached up for the fruit on the tree, the tree would stretch the fruit just up out of his reach. So he was constantly hungry and thirsty, and the resource was just out of his reach. Uh, and so we see these all over the world, and they're always influenced by the governing uh, the governing view of the divine, the governing religious, uh, not to say orthodoxy, because as we establish, there's not necessarily an orthodoxy about this whole thing. It's not as unified as we might uh, have expected it to be, but there's a religious feeling to it. And then, of course, we see how much this stuff influences biblical mythology. So we can draw a pretty, pretty interesting connection between uh, the, those stories of sort of uh, representational or symbolic uh, resurrection in Persephone and Orpheus, all the way to Here's Jesus, he was actually resurrected. Here's Lazarus, who Jesus brought back to life from death. And here's this biblical version of hell, this garden of earthly delights that we're going to use as the scariest thing in the world to scare the hell out of, literally scare the hell out of people. Well, every Greek hero, you mentioned Jesus. So every Greek hero is in part human and part divine in substance and has to travel to the underworld and come back. Mm-hmm. You know, not that undifferent to Jesus's story. Right. Um, and, you know, I know there's people out there that worship Jesus, and if it offends you, get the fuck over it, because that's, you know, like, sorry, the ancient Hebrew didn't invent it, you know? <laughs> so don't think your story is all that unique, because it's not. <laughs> it's just not. Well, and it's true that, you know, it's important to note that Jesus's story draws upon ancient Near Eastern. Absolutely. Near Eastern, which is the the ancient Middle East as we've come to know it, um, but yeah, it was definitely influenced. The The first uh, written instance of the Christian Bible is in Greek. Yeah. You know, written by the Greeks. Uh, the word Messiah is Greek in origin. I believe it translates to king. I could be wrong about that. Correct me, internet, if I'm not 100%. But it's a Greek word. So yeah, there's this, this influence, the idea that the ancient world wasn't interconnected in which stories and people... Uh, couldn't travel where information didn't flow is just not accurate. You know, it was a very interconnected, very economically and culturally integrated world in which different peoples connected with each other all the time. Right. So these stories did go around. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to really observe, uh, observe that underworld theme that travels through our stories. Uh, so I'm wondering what do you think is, what do you think the underworld really is? What do you think hell really is in these stories? Well, it's important to note that the underworld to the ancient Greek is not similar to hell as it is to the modern Christian, of right? Of course, yeah. Uh, but both represent the idea of a very real place. You know, so there is an idea in ancient Greek philosophy of what is the difference between humanity and an animal. Um, and their best, you know, way to answer that question was the soul 
there had to be a divine spark, a substance that made humanity different from animals. Otherwise, why are we so different? Right. You know, modern evolutionary biology tells us we're not that different. You know, we're actually very similar to these other animals. Yeah. But at a first glance, yeah, there seems to be a big difference between myself and a cat, you know, or myself and a wolf. So I think working out these ideas um, and coming up to the idea that there is some difference and some specialness then leads one to think, well, what happens to that specialness upon the death of the body? If that specialness came from the gods originally, it's not part of the body. Doesn't that continue somewhere when you die? Right. And where does it go? And then you need an answer to that question. And so the mythic tradition comes in there. Now, there's a lot of Greek philosophy, and most of them, some of them didn't believe in the underworld, right? Or didn't believe in the underworld in the mythic tradition, thought that there might be some kind of an underworld but to think you went into some like dark dungeon where Hades ruled over you was just naive, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but at the same time, it comes from trying to fully understand this 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 question that gnaws at everyone, which is what happens when we die? And none of us, if we're being honest, none of us, whether you're an uh, you're Frederick Nietzsche, the atheist of all atheists. Or they're the most devout person. If you have a choice, you don't want death to be the end if it doesn't have to be, right? Right, yeah. We're all comforted by the idea that death is just one end of one phase into another. and it's that a transition. Yeah, and that comes from the fact that we're the only species that we know of in the universe that's aware that of they die. Mortality, yeah. No, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head, I uh, think. Nope, that's Freud. None of those ideas are mine. They're all Freud's. Oh, sure. Okay. Just want to give credit to my homie, Freud. Cool. All right. Thanks. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. I threw Freud in there. It's the, the, the death anxiety. Okay. I think the other, the other thing that they're grappling with, so not just what happens after we die, I think the other question that we're grappling with in these stories of the underworld and the, the other side are, what does it mean to be human? And I got that just out of what you were saying. Uh, if there is a soul, if there is a divine spark, and hopefully it goes somewhere, hopefully we transcend something. But what if not? What if what if there's nothing? If there's nothing, then what does it mean to be human? And I think that the stories we talked about do ask that question in a way as well. They deal with state changes. They deal with uh, identity, right? So you you go into the underworld... You see Achilles there. He's no longer Achilles, right? He's a shade of Achilles. Right. Eurydice, she's not Eurydice anymore. Persephone, she's not dead. She's only eaten some pomegranates, but she's not the same Persephone she was before she entered the underworld. So there's this stripping of identity as well that I think is is a little anxiety-inducing, and maybe this is a way for us to work that out. Um yeah, I think that's another piece. But what what does it mean to be human? Absolutely. I think I think answering the question of why the underworld, what does it mean to be the underworld, uh, it, it's only relevant academically or philosophically um, if we put that under the prism of we're doing this and asking this question to understand humanity writ yeah. large. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that is a very, very... A uh, great way to frame it. Studying myth um, is a way of studying people 
to understand what does it mean to be a person and to grapple with when a society comes up to answers to these questions to the best of their ability when they don't have any actual knowledge. Right. I mean, look at Dante. Look at the Inferno. Have you read the Inferno? I have. Yeah. It, and it's... It's a, it's a medieval Greek myth. Yeah. And it's absurd. It, it's Dante with Virgil, you know, just wandering through hell and the, the several circles of hell and Dante writing his enemies into various circles of hell and describing more and more flamboyant punishments for them that are right out of Greek mythology. They really are. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Should we do some pop culture? I was just going to say, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about uh, a couple of movies that came out this year. So before you go any further, we are going to have some spoilers for Get Out and Wonder Woman. And I know exactly what you're thinking. You're like, what the hell do Wonder Woman and Get Out have to do with the underworld? Everything. Everything. Can we talk about Wonder Woman first? No, let's do Get Out first. Let's do Get Out first. All right, okay. so spoiler warning up. If you haven't seen Get Out, honestly, what the fuck's wrong with you? And oh, yeah, see it. It's, yeah, go it's see on Get iTunes out. now. And we're going to go spoil it now. It's fantastic. Um, one of the best movies that came out this year. Uh, so the question that I asked at the top of the, um, the podcast, just to reiterate, was what is our contemporary underworld myth? What is the underworld to us now in a secular story driven society? Uh, now get out. I'm assuming everybody now who's still listening has, has watched it, um, deals with a different kind of underworld than, you know, in a cave, you take a ferry, you pay the ferryman and he takes you across the river of sticks and you meet with Hades and there's a three headed dog. You have, uh, you have a very real, albeit somewhat magical, somewhat mystical underworld present in Get Out. It has a name. It's called The Sunken Place. And it's essentially the place where our leading man, Chris, goes when he's hypnotized by the evil white woman. Um, so to, to really explore what that sunken place is, you can look at it symbolically and then you can look at it individually the effect that it has on Chris. Um, so the effect that it has on Chris when he is hypnotized is to kind of sink into his chair and go back to being a child and relive the worst moment of his life, which was him sitting, watching TV, not doing anything when his mother didn't come home from work and finding out later that she had been killed. And he goes back and he relives this moment in a very Greco-Roman, hellish kind of way, like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up with the knowledge of what, what's happening. He sinks back into this. And it's a very personal, very vulnerable moment for Chris, our hero. Now, in a larger sense, the, the sunken place is used as a tool. So, of course, they can take Chris's brain and put it in a white man. But I think the, the sunken place has a greater symbolism for relations in our, our country, in our world. It really talks to the... Um, it talks to the invisibility. It talks to the stripping of identity of black men and black women in our society. Would you agree with that? Um, I would. And I would also say that 
to me, the sunken places, one trial that Chris has to go through and his entire journey could be, I don't know if it's intended this way, but his entire journey could be a journey into the underworld and back. Right. Where the sunken place is just one trial in the one underworld. stop on that. No, I think that's a the, really good... This entire underworld where there's this new modern form of slavery where black personality can be, you know, scrubbed clean and a white personality can go into a black body. Yeah. Is this whole other type of like a modern underworld in the respect that it's, you know, it's an, it's black market, no pun intended, you know, it's against the law. It's just highly, like you called it magical or like sci so super sci-fi sci yeah. that it just might as well be magical you know, in terms of its scope of its technology that it does. And it involves an individual who willfully takes the plunge into this world, not knowing at first, it seems kind of like a utopia where just around the corner, everything seems a little rotten. Yeah. And then as he goes further deep into it, he has to go through trial after trial. And he luckily then, you know, if you've seen, uh, you've seen the movie at this point, we're spoiling it gets to escape where the sunken place is just one part of the underworld. Yeah, I think that's that's brilliant. Yeah, and no, it, it, I totally agree with everything you said right. about the sunken place. But it carries a lot of those same questions. It carries the question of like that fear of death, what what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? Am well, I going to be murdered by these people? What happened to Dre is the other guy's name? Right. Um right. What what's going on here? What is beyond the next veil, essentially? And, and you mentioned and the loss of self. Who am I? Yeah. Who are you? What is this? That question of identity and the idea of having one's identity be sunken into yourself and assumed by someone else. It's it's a really new it's an innovation on that question of identity, but it hits the very same strings and does so in a way that's so present and so relevant and so with us right now. That's um, it's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. And we should do a whole podcast on get out. I would love to do a whole podcast on get out. You know, um, Cause I feel like putting it through the context and the lens of the underworld while cool doesn't do justice to the dialogue that that movie should inspire. Not at all. Yeah. But I absolutely totally agree with you. Can we get to Wonder Woman now? Yes. I yes. just wanted to say, um, you know, since we were inspired by our, our conversation on uh, a brother, where art thou and how these two underworlds that we've now talked about in contemporary storytelling really deal with the difficulty of racism in America specifically, I think uh, is, is an interesting thing to point out. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know how to get my, my words around this, but racism is wrong. Well, yeah, it's bringing things to the surface that are, are underneath our conventional dialogue. It's, uh, you know, how do we bring the underworld out? And that's happening. That's happening every day on the news. That's happening in our conversations now, but it, it's important to point these things out and say, let's, continue to give microphones to these conversations about showing the dark underbelly of humanity. Anyway, as the new underworld. As the new underworld. So Wonder Woman. So Wonder Woman, um, spoiler warning, we're going to talk about the movie that just came out, directed by, I want to say, Patty Jenkins, mm -hmm. starring Gal Gadot. 
Um, another movie that could do, we could do a whole podcast on. So um, I'm going to assume if you're still listening, you've seen the movie. So I'm not going to recap. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, turn the podcast off, go to your movie theater, see Wonder Woman, because it's just goddamn delightful. And it's you great. Just should, yeah, yeah. You, should, you should just go see it. So there's an amazing scene in Wonder Woman in which Wonder Woman is walking through a World War I trench. And she's walking with her compadres and they're trying to go on like a secret covert mission. And Wonder Woman's like, wait, hold on. No, the battle's here. The battle's happening now. And uh, there's people that need my help. And uh, her love interest, you know, like spy guy that's like showing her the world that's not Themyscira, the world of man, so to speak, you know, is trying to convince her, listen, this, this battle is fucked anyway. Uh, we have to focus on a more utilitarian view of morality and just do what we came here to do. We have to covertly sneak through the hell of war and uh, get our way out of it. And she poignantly goes, yeah, you know what? You might have come here to do that, but I didn't. And you don't control me. And so what does Wonder Woman do in the trench? Now, I'm going to go with this metaphor. I don't know if it's intentional. However, I find it uh, probably intentional that... We have a character who is Greek mythology incarnate in the modern sense. Right. That I think it, they did have to have some semblance of Diana to reach her power has to go into the underworld and come out. And I would say when she finally climbs out of that trench and onto the battlefield, we now see the next phase of the movie start where she is entering her trials in the underworld. So she is, starts off in Themyscira. What is it? It's a paradise. It's Eden. You know, it is the a place untouched by technology, by disease, by age. It is by all stretch of the imagination the perfect place ever. It's Paradise Island. It has a like a veil of magic that surrounds it that hides it from everywhere else. As Diana gets brought into the outskirts of war. She's sort of like Odysseus skirting around the edge of the underworld. Right. Her first reaction of London is that it's disgusting, right? As she gets to London. And then as she gets to London, she gets closer. Now, once she's in the hell of war, she's in the symbolic underworld. Right. And that is when we also start to see her um, utilize her powers in a leadership capacity. So she legitimately leads this battle to victory and then takes the town to save the villagers. Yeah. You know, one step of taking the underworld back, and the underworld doesn't just let this happen. They kill all the villagers that she saves. You know, so they end up gassing them all. You know, the Germans do just because they, they can. But I would say that symbolically, when she gets out of that trench, she has crossed the gulf of the the regular world into the hell of war, yeah, absolutely. which to me is symbolically the underworld. And this is where we see uh, her almost fall to cynicism. This is where we see the Satan character, Ares, almost tempt her to give up on humanity. Right. And this is what I would call her emergence from the underworld. Um, when she has this, you know, major boss fight with Ares, even the moments before she, she has been focused for most of the, um, most of the film thinking that Ludendorff, who's the, one of the German officers is Ares. And so she's ready to destroy him. And once that happens, once he's killed, mankind will stop fighting and they'll realize that they're all friends because she's an Amazon and she's the bridge to a greater understanding. 
and she's a symbol symbol of love. Um, but of course, once she kills Ludendorff, we find out number one that he's not actually Ares, but she, when she still thinks that he is and that she's succeeded, the men don't stop fighting. The war doesn't end. You know, people don't suddenly snap out of whatever hold that Ares had on them, and so there's this dissent that Diana has where she says, like, why am I even fighting for these people? Uh, they just are violent by nature and they want to tear each other apart. And we think of what her mother Hippolyta said, be careful in the world of man, they do not deserve you. But her emergence from the underworld is her recognition after, oh God, spoiler alert, please, I hope you're not listening anymore if you haven't watched it, but when the gallant Steve Trevor sacrifices himself for you know, the good of thousands of millions of people. That's Chris Pine, right? Chris Pine, yeah. Beautiful scene. Uh, she, she emerges with this recognition that mankind has both darkness and light in them, has both, you know, living, has life and death, has dark and light, has love and hate, has fear and transcendence, has every side of this coin. And this is that greater understanding that she's here to bring. She, she finally comes out of this uh, naivete that, that mankind can just be controlled by you know, any evil force on the outside and really begins to understand uh, the machinations of what are, what's at work, that there's so much more inside mankind. And I think it's a hopeful, it's a very optimistic uh, attempt to answer that question of what humanity is, what it means to be human. But we have to get there by crossing those trials, by really descending into the darkest version of Diana that's like, man isn't worth my help, right? Absolutely. Uh, boomerang here. Do it. So in the comics, Ares is also like the bad god that she has to battle, right? Mm -hmm. I hate that. I hate that too. It's really awful. It's a bad decision in the comics. It's even worse in the movies because Ares is clearly Satan in the movie. Yeah. Right? He's clearly done uh, as in, in a satanic line as a guy's like, I don't actually make people evil. I just give him a nudge about, oh, here's a bad thing you could do or not do. If you do it, you'll get more money. Oh, so you did the bad thing, right? That he can't dominate or master free will but he can shape human events right. through influence and control is very Satan. The problem is, is that Ares was not a hated God in the ancient world. Right. War was not an evil thing. War was the profession of just about every man in the ancient world. They had to do it. Those that did it the best got the highest honors. Those honors were celebrated as the honors to Ares. And like the idea that there's trying to make a comment that, yeah, okay, war is evil and war is that, you know, war is bad. Well, why have Diana essentially also be a goddess of war? Yeah. You know, like, so I feel like there's a conflict there and the, the God that became associated with the devil um, in the late Roman, early medieval Europe was Dionysus. Right, because he was the god of revelry and wine, and and he and, was the cult that it took the hardest to to like overthrow. Yeah. So when people were given up on Zeus and Apollo and all See them, what they did to Orpheus, right? 
And they were still sacrificing to Dionysus. So the Catholic Church, the ancient Catholic Church, went on a smear campaign and pretty much turned Dionysus and his compadre Pan into the devil. If you're ever wondering, why does the devil have hooves and horns? It's because they made him look like Pan. Right. Right. So it's like, um, so I feel like in terms of like honoring the mythic tradition of Wonder Woman, why make Ares the Satan when he clearly wasn't? I mean, it, to me, it seems like, you know, the, uh, war sucks. Let's make it the God of war. And yeah, war sucks. Um, we don't worship war anymore. But like, it's like, come on. You know, what's interesting to me about this boomerang is mm-hmm. it, it strikes me how the the complexity scales have kind of reached a different kind of balance. And what I mean by that is that, um, so we were talking before about Edith Hamilton and how she like, totally oversimplified the major complexities in how uh, Greek gods and goddesses were. Or or just changed them because she thought it made a better story or just lied. Right, but definitely twisted them so it was a little neater and didn't require as much complexity um, to to sort of get your head around so that you could feed it to school children, right? Um, So the, the... movie and the comic books saying Ares is the god of war and he's the villain of this is subscribing to that simplified version that Edith Hamilton put out there of uh, you know Greek mythic symbols and yet the conclusion of the movie and the apotheosis that the main character finds is infinitely more complex than any other superhero movie I've seen right uh, except maybe Civil War uh, in the recent era, like last five years, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, and so there's this sort of tipping of those scales. That's like, okay, let's use this more recognizable symbol and let's say, okay, that's bad and that's evil. So we can just point at that, make it a little more simple while we complexify or we add some layers to the journey of the actual hero and the uh, understanding that they have to reach in the end. So I, I'm not making excuses. I definitely no, agree I, I with you. No, I see where you're coming from. But I'm like, maybe that's part of why this kind of thing has to happen. And I think if you're going to make, so to in, to defend uh, Patty Jenkins, who directed the movie, if you're going to make Wonder Woman the movie and you're going to change the bad guy to the not bad guy from the comics, you're going to piss off the fanboys. Yeah. And you don't want to piss off the fanboys for Wonder Woman because some are just going to be pissed off because Wonder Woman has a movie to begin with. So I kind of get the idea of like, well, I got to honor the comics. Absolutely. Yeah. And not rewrite the comics because otherwise people are going to already put a target on this movie anyway. That's just going to intensify the target and make it, you know, so much harder to win over you know, that small group of like really intense DC fanboys who have a really loud internet megaphone that can sometimes ruin a movie or make a movie. Yeah. We just got to get you a louder internet megaphone so that you can get some like real uh, mythic and historical accuracy in movies these days, right? Do you hear that internet? Laurel gave you a challenge. Give me a louder megaphone. It's time for you internet to magnify my voice make it as loud and as booming as Hercules uh, as he travels into the underworld. I hope that never ends. That was amazing. Um, But yeah, Wonder Woman, symbolic, sort of similar like Get Out, a symbolic underworld, not an actual traveling to hell, but I think it's all over that movie. I think it's intentional. I don't know. 
um, that that that's part of her journey, and she comes out of it with peace and hope and love, um, you know, and in many ways get out a symbolic underworld, not a real actual one. I think to answer your question in that you started with, that in the secularization of pop culture, that it is made free from the dogmas of religion that force it mm -hmm. to purely be about religion. Um, the underworld as a story device is everywhere. Sometimes literally mentioned, sometimes um, symbolically mentioned. You know, I can think of another reference. Gladiator talks about going to Elysium, yeah. the Roman heaven in the very beginning of the movie yeah, as the a way for, for him to go home. Right. As a way, like no matter what happens, if you die in battle, you, and if you do, don't worry, you'll end up in Elysium. It's all good. Um, so I think that's everywhere. I think, um, you know, to many, many Americans and, uh, many of, uh, you know, the closest friends and neighbors to America, the underworld is literally heaven and hell. Um, and that's how they understand it. And that's how they'll contextualize it. And that when you die, you go to one or the other, I think, uh, a lot, millions, billions of people that that is still the underworld as they know it. They look at it through the prism of their religious dogmas. But I think pop culture has added this new fun of what is the other type of underworld? Could it be Mick Everett going to a KKK rally? Could it be, um, you know, uh, Wonder Woman entering the battles of World War One? Could it be the sunken place and get out? And the answer to all those questions is yes. Yeah. Um, I think to, to just go back to the first stories that we talked about a little bit um, and how much they dealt with uh, with human nature and even, you know, even in stories about gods and goddesses and divine figures, how much they deal with uh, human things like being so hungry, you have to eat a pomegranate or, uh, you know, having so much doubt lingering in the back of your mind or having so much curiosity that you just have to turn around and look at your wife, even though that's going to doom her to stay in hell forever. Uh, there's, there's such a spirit of defiance in so many of these tales, uh, a spirit of breaking the rules that is a very human kind of thing to do, to test the boundaries of what the rules are, of the orthodoxies, of the dogmas that are in place. Well, those stories, though, are not about that, They're right? They're not about that. Because I'm, I'm, drawing a, I'm drawing a sort of outside right. conclusion. but Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that those are all there and how, you know, in, in Greek mythology, of course, we see people struck down by those things. We see people struck down in every Greek tragedy by their defiance of God's will or, you know, their, their human uh, pride and their thinking that they can uh, outmaneuver divinity. And in our contemporary underworld stories, we deal with really similar things, but the answers are a little more open-ended. That's what I think. To the game. To the game. Uh, great. So every week here on the Midnight Myth podcast, we like to play a little game to have some fun with the characters and situations we've been talking about. Uh, and we would love for you to play along. So, um, if you have an answer to this, please hit us up on Twitter at the Midnight Myth or, uh, drop us a line on Facebook to search the Midnight Myth podcast or visit us on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. So 
What's the game, Derek? Very simple. If you were to be dead and your soul were to go to the underworld, however, you're on the naughty list, so you fucked up in life pretty bad, um, you have to suffer a torment. What would your eternal torment be and why? Okay. I've got That's answer. a really fucked up game, it's isn't it? It's a pretty it? fucked up game. I've got to think of and tell the world my ultimate torture. Yep. So, uh, dear listeners, my lovely co-host, Derek Jones, and I uh, have started running recently uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, something I never thought I'd be able to do before, but we've been using a Couch to 5K app, and it's, it's, it's pretty great how, how much it really teaches you and how much strength you build up. However... We're in the last few days of that app and we're running five Ks like every other day and holy fucking shit. It sucks. Like it sucks so much. Um, like I get a stitch in my side. I can't breathe. I get like shoulder cramps. Um, I, I just want to die. I just want to lay down and die. I just long for the sweet embrace of death when that happens. Um, and so I think, I think that my eternal torment would be continuing the 5K app forever, like like being on a run forever with a stitch, with a sore shoulder, with you know wheezy breath, not being able to catch my breath ever, and always being in the last minute. Like it always being the last minute. Every time I look down at my watch, it's still the last minute. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. What, so, until you added that detail, I'm like, all right, that, that sounds bad. Oh, it's always the last minute yeah. for eternity. So That's never, really bad. I never get used to it. It never becomes comfortable. It's just the same. It's just that last minute forever. Very Sisyphean. All right, so here's mine. It's kind of similar. So I wake up. I go. I sit in a chair. In comes the dentist. No. I get dental surgery without Novocaine. It's bad. I pass out. I wake up. I walk into a room, I sit down, mm. repeat, eternal dental surgery without Novocaine till I fall asleep and or till I pass out from the pain and wake up and it all starts over oh my God. and over and over again. And all I did was give the mortals fire. It wasn't like that was that bad. Oh, that's what you did? All I did was give them fire. They were cold. I think your torment is worse than having an eagle eat your liver every day and having it rogue. Regrow. I think the dental thing is much worse than what happened at Prometheus. I don't know. They're both pretty bad. They are both pretty bad. Yeah. You know, um, they didn't have dental surgery. Otherwise, Zeus would have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But anyway, uh, one last thing. And if you guys get the opportunity, if you like what you hear, uh, please go to iTunes, give us a review. Or if you want to give us some feedback, what you think we could do better please go to iTunes and give us a review. Yeah. If there's an underworld story we missed. I was just going to say, if you can think of a really interesting contemporary pop culture, symbolic underworld or literal underworld, we would love to hear about that and maybe shout you out on the podcast. Cause there's tons of them. I can think of them off the top of my head now that I challenged the listeners. So guys hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, the website, um, your ideas. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, hell is other people. Be kind. Mm-hmm.